Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Rodney Clough, the author of World's Top Secret, Our Earth is Hollow. He has been a researcher of this subject for over 20 years. He has been in the data management business. He has also been a computer programmer and analyst for the Department of Health Services for 16 years. And one day in New Mexico on a farm began his interest and research into the fact that the earth is hollow. This is against everything we've heard in science, in geology, and yet there are scientific facts showing us that our earth is indeed hollow. And this will impact everything we understand about our solar system, the sun, the earth, and life itself. It will even impact the way we think about our scriptures, no matter what scriptures you're looking at. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Rodney Clough to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Good on your show. <laughs> Thank you for being here. You know, sometimes when you hear about a new discovery, it is around sometimes for 50 years, for hundreds of years, sometimes for thousands of years before it's accepted. We agree that Columbus discovered America, since that's what we read. When I interviewed Gavin Menzies, who wrote 1421 and 1434, about how there's so much evidence that he actually had maps with him when he discovered America, which lends itself to the fact that others may have been there before, when we think about the Earth, Rodney, and the Earth being hollow, it's kind of like most of us just want to believe everything we've read or been told. And that's really the juncture where you and I are talking today. Talk a little bit about Admiral Byrd's mission. What actually happened with him? What was he doing? Who was he? Why is he important and his story important to us in understanding why it is that we cannot fly over the poles? Admiral Byrd, of course, uh, was working for the United States Navy, but he also received funding from the Rockefellers, and I think that's where he got uh, some of the uh, control in what he was doing uh, taken away from him is because uh, of those those super rich people that uh, were helping fund his uh, explorations of the poles uh, back in 19, you know, thereabouts, uh, Marshall B. Gardner wrote a book about uh, the hollow earth, and uh, he sent his book to the governments of all the world. Uh, he encouraged them to check out the North Polar Opening. And, in fact, they did, and they they sent Admiral Byrd on many flights uh, to the North Pole and to the South Pole. And there are uh, indications that he did actually find uh, the polar openings at the, at the both poles and fly in them. In 1980, we <clears throat> I took my family, and we flew to Fairbanks, Alaska, and uh, there I met a fellow named John Gagne, who at one time was a radio announcer in Juneau, the capital. And one uh, weekend he was outside the city with some buddies, uh, just 
sightseeing and uh, up the, up this one canyon, he looked up on this high mountain and he saw this light light up and pretty soon it turned red and zipped off into space. And uh, back on his radio, uh, he was commenting on it and uh, he says uh, a couple of days later, uh, a lady came into the office and said her name was Sylvia Darbell, that she had been a close friend of Admiral Byrd from way back, and that Admiral Byrd, after his flight into the Arctic, confessed to her that after they had flown past the ice, they came to an open ocean and then the continent covered with lush vegetation. They even saw a mammoth wandering on the terrain below. They were presently sighted by flying saucer-type craft that took control of the airplane and landed them near an inner Earth city. He said the people that live inside the hollow Earth are a giant uh, 10 to 15 feet tall people, but very educated, very highly advanced in the sciences. Uh, they claim that they are the guardians of this planet. They told Admiral Bird that they wanted him to take a message back to our government, and that was that they uh, did not approve of our use of nuclear weapons. We had just blown up two cities in that in Japan at the end of World War II uh, a couple of years before Admiral Byrd flew up there, and they were very concerned about our use of nuclear weapons, and they wanted to have him deliver to Washington an ultimatum that they did not want us using nuclear weapons anymore. And uh, he was put back in his airplane, put taken up in the sky, and, and uh, they let him come back and delivered his message. But when he delivered his message, they told him not to tell anybody about it. Uh, it was, was super-top-secret, world-top-secret. Uh, but... Still, he, he tried to, to get his message out, and uh, apparently he did, because we have some accounts of it. What happened to him? Well, the last I heard that that uh, that something happened to him that he died just a couple of years later after his flight into the Arctic, uh, after, after, after returning from uh, a flight in in Antarctica, in which he made it to the Hollow Earth also, uh, it was just a couple of years later that he mysteriously died. So I, I am curious that maybe he was eliminated because he wouldn't keep quiet about what he was, what he discovered. Why is there a no-fly zone over Antarctica? What is this about? Yeah, it's curious uh, that... There's uh, a place in the Antarctic that the powers that be just don't want people going around there. Uh, there was a, a ski trip that was taken across Antarctica, and it was supposed to go across that area, which we believe uh, could be the polar opening down there. And they got to a part way, and they uh, they were told not to go any further. So... Uh, there is a an effort to keep this discovery uh, secret from the world. Uh, there was a 
Canadian uh, Department of Defense minister, I think his name is Paul Hellier, that uh, spoke with a high government official in our government about, uh, he wanted to know uh, about uh, flying, the flying saucer aspect. And uh, he was told that flying saucers are top secret by uh, an official in our government. And uh, if flying saucers are top secret, then the hollow earth is even above that. So that's why I call it world top secret, because that's the place where most of these flying saucers are coming from. Uh, Dr. Stephen Greer has interviewed uh, hundreds of people who have worked in black projects, uh, ex-military, uh, and several of his technical experts that you can you can order his DVD and and listen to their their testimony. Uh, say that uh, the most frequented locations that flying saucers for, uh, are seen are around atomic mil uh, military installations. And in fact, uh, several of these expert witnesses have testified that flying saucers or UFOs have actually shut down like mi nuclear missile sites, uh, just uh, turn them off. And uh, one of them uh, remarked that uh, our military sent a nuclear missile uh, to explode on the moon and it was intercepted by UFOs and destroyed. Another one was a uh, took film, took moving movie film of a missile that was shot up over the Pacific that was intercepted by a flying saucer and knocked out of the sky. So they have uh, an, a vigilance, a close vigilance on our use of nuclear weapons and our, where we store them, where we carry them in our uh, submarines, in our, uh, in our ships, in our underground silos and have actually, I think, prevented nuclear war. It's as if we're being managed. In 1958, uh, a fellow named Reinhold Schmidt from Los Angeles, he had just got through reading Frank Scully's book all about the flying saucers, and he was just thinking about it, and he got this telepathic message to go outside the city. He drove out and, and uh, parked his car in this quarry, and uh, he just waited there until about 3 in the afternoon, and a flying saucer swooped down from the sky, landed in the, in the quarry. A guy got out. He looked just like humans, only there were tall people. Uh, he um, motioned to him if he want, wanted to come with them. Uh, he got out of his car. They, they shot him with a, uh, a beam that... Uh, momentarily paralyzed him, but he understood that that was to uh, charge his body so it wouldn't be damaged by getting in their flying saucer that uses magnetic uh, in, uh, energy. And so they, uh, they, they invited him aboard. They spoke perfectly, perfect English, but they also spoke a, a high German language that he knew because he, his, he came from German, Germany and his father had taught him some of the high German language. 
And so he, uh, when they spoke amongst themselves, he could understand a little bit of what they were saying, but they also spoke perfect English. They took off and they went up over the uh, Arctic. And he says that they flew through this hull in the Arctic Ocean. And they were, uh, after they flew through the hole, they were just in another world. There was a sun, and they were, he was taken on a, uh, tour of the, the Hollow Earth. Uh, they, he saw their cities, their, the landscape. He said the tour lasted for five days. He didn't give a lot of details on what they were doing all that time, but he was brought back through the polar opening back to his home. And he understood that from uh, what they they told him that they considered themselves the guardians for the create for the creator of this planet. So they actually are taking an active role in uh, managing our planet. You say on your website that the. Hollow Earth is located at the polar openings at 87.7 degrees north and south latitude. Is that true? And how do you know that exactly? Okay, uh, I originally uh, had uh, uh, studied some of the uh, sightings of uh, um, mirages of land in the Arctic uh, by several different uh, uh, polar explorers. Admiral Perry, when he went to the pole in 1909, he was up on the northern shore of Ellers Island. He got up one morning on, and walked up to the top of uh, Axel Hillberg uh, Island, uh, the mountain there on the shore, uh, and looked out over the north uh, northwest, and he saw this uh, mirage of land out there. And he actually uh, claimed that it was land, and it was appeared on the National Geographic maps for several years. And he called it uh, uh, Crocker Land. And then uh, on the Russian side of the pole, the, the Russians have sighted land north of the New Siberian Islands. They uh, called it Sanikov Land. And then uh, Captain Keenan from Alaska uh, um, sighted land, uh, a mirage of land towards the north. Uh, also, as well as... Uh, uh, many of the Eskimos, they would tell people uh, about this land in the, in, in the north. And so um, Max Millen and uh, Perry's uh, physicist, uh, Lieutenant Green, they went out there on the ice on an expedition to see if they could uh, find that land. And they, they went out uh, 200 miles, and the mirage of land could still be seen farther north, and yet uh, it, did, it seemed like it was just as far as away uh, after 200 miles as it was from the shore. And so uh, what they, what they, 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 at that point, they turned around and came back, but if, if they had continued, they would have gone through the pole opening because that land does exist. It's, it's, uh, it's within the polar opening. It's about halfway through, and uh, at times when the atmosphere is just right up in the Arctic, because of the warm air that comes up out of the polar opening, uh, it goes way up above the ice, and so when you look up, it reflects down into the polar opening. 
And uh, that's what people are seeing as uh, a mirage of land up there. Now, a couple of years ago, we were contacted by Lieutenant uh, retired Lieutenant uh, Billy Woodard, who had joined the Air Force and was assigned to the top secret base called Area 51 in New Me- in uh, Nevada. And his assignment there, uh, for which he, he lost his pension because he wouldn't keep quiet about this, was that uh, his, his top secret assignment there was in charge of the Hollow Earth file. And uh, he, he says that in the Hollow Earth file, Area 51 was all the... Uh, the accounts of uh, Admiral Byrd's flights beyond the poles into the hollow earth. He gave, gave the exact coordinates of the North Polar opening, and it was close to the to the my estimated polar opening uh, location that I had estimated based on the mirage, sightings of mirages in the Arctic. Uh, but it's uh, actually uh, the 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 location that's given by Admiral Byrd in his writings that Billy was able to get out of uh, Area 51 when he uh, exited uh, the military, when he when he quit the military, uh, he gave me those coordinates, and uh, they are 87.7 north latitude, 142.2 east longitude. Did you say 142.2 longitude? 142.2 east longitude, uh, 87.7 north latitude. And then uh, after he re- he uh, got out of the military, uh, Billy went to Alaska and uh, was able to uh, get a uh, seaplane, uh, an albatross seaplane owner to take him and some people that he had invited to go with him. And they flew up there, and they got close enough to the polar opening they could see the inner sun shining up over the, the horizon. And uh, he was they, he was actually turned back by an Air Force a military jet. And the reason was is because Billy uh, had invited a New York correspondent that had wanted to go with him, and before they left Point Barrel, he had called his office back in New York of what they were planning on doing, and uh, the 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 office uh, contacted the military and had them turned back. So you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Billy probably didn't know at that time that uh, the New York Times was owned by the Rockefellers. The same ones that are keeping the, the Hollow Earth secret that had actually financed some of the expeditions and and work of Admiral Byrd. What is Olaf Johnson's work about? I know that he sailed northeast through a lead in the ice on July first, eighteen twenty nine, and that he accidentally discovered the North Polar opening into a hollow Earth. Why is he important? Is it because he's one of the first people that let the cat out of the bag, or what? Well, I've uh, looked into the historical evidence for the Hollow Earth, and the first uh, evidence I have of uh, an explorer that's gone to the Hollow Earth was uh, is actually a person from the Bible. His name was Enoch, 
he was like the great 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 grandson of or the fourth generation fifth sixth generation uh, after Adam in his writings uh, he talks about the inner sun and the light that streams towards the poles and uh, he talks about the Garden of Eden in the hollow earth and uh, evidently he did make it to the hollow earth in order to describe those things but in the, over the years, there there have been other people that have gone to the hollow earth. Uh, there have been people that have gone to the hollow earth through uh, inter you know, through cavern systems. What does that mean? Uh, there are openings in the earth, uh, uh, caverns that uh, reach through the the shell of the earth, clear to the inner inner surface. Uh, in eighteen. 27, uh, William Morgan, he was living uh, in, I think, at Ohio or, or close to Kentucky. Uh, he wrote a book about, he joined the Freemasons, and his intent was to, dis- to publish to the world their f- secret rights. Which he did, and for which, uh, and I, in fact, I even have his uh, his books uh, written on their secret rights. And uh, for that, the, the Masons had him thrown in jail on a debt, and uh, then they stole him out of the jail. They threw a body in a in the lake or a river and told the people that published it that that uh, that was William Morgan, and that they made it look like he was he had died. In fact. His wife was even taken to the body, and the body looked so much like him that she she claimed that it was him. Uh, but it wasn't. He he was just taken out into the forest and and to a cabin, and he was. They put some kind of chemical on his skin, so it turned wrinkled, wrinkly, and they put a chemical on his hair. They made they left him there uh, so long that his hair grew real long, and. Uh, his hair uh, with a chemical turned white. So then uh, they took him back to his wife. He tried to convince her that he was her husband, but she says, no, my husband's dead. You're, you're just a homeless. Uh, and she, she didn't even recognize him. And so she refused him. And so then they took him down to Kentucky uh, near the Mammoth Cave System. And it's probably a tributary of the Mammoth Cave System where they entered this, this cavern and waiting there for them was this inner earth guide. And didn't, the book didn't explain. The book is called Edadorpa. Uh, didn't explain how the, the Masons uh, contacted this inner earth guide, but uh, this inner earth guide did take him through the cavern systems, clear through uh, to the hollow earth, or uh, were almost to the hollow earth. He, he got about halfway, and then he was met by another another guide that took him on into the hollow earth. And he explained that the Earth has a shell that is 800 miles from the outside to the inner surface. So the Earth really is nothing like what we've been taught. How does that affect our plate tectonic system? Well, I studied, when I went to college, I studied geology. I was, originally, my intent was to become a geologist. And I changed my major later to music, but I did study enough of geology to to uh, find out that 
the uh, Earth has what they call plate tectonics. So it's, the Earth has been it's, uh, the surface of the Earth has been cracked into uh, several plates, and uh, the plates that have the the boundaries uh, of these plates is where most of the earthquakes and the volcanism uh, extrusion of lava from inside the earth occurs. And so uh, it was interesting to me to find out that exactly where most of the lava is coming out is where most of the earthquakes are are occurring. And uh, the fact is that uh, this this is curious because... uh, Earthquakes cannot occur in 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 lava. It has to uh, an earthquake occurs when uh, layers of the solid earth is are cracked by uh, bending with the uh, uh, gravitational interaction of the moon, sun, and and, and earth. Uh, it causes tides on Earth. Uh, in the ocean, most people are acquainted with the tides that are caused by the Earth, by the Moon, and the Sun. Uh, that causes the, the ocean tides to rise and rise and fall about four feet every day or more. Uh, but also on land, uh, there are tides also, and and these tides are much less. They're only about one feet that the Earth goes up and down each each day. But these interactions and expansions and contractions of the earth cause cracks to open up in the in the earth, <clears throat> and what happens uh, is that water seeps down into these cracks, and as explained by the Inner Earth Guide in Anadorpa, explained to uh, William Morgan, how the earth is uh, formed, that the earth was formed as a space bubble on which collected space dust and space rocks, and a lot of which are pure metals. And uh, what actually is happening in volcanism is that water seeps down into original deposits of the, the space dust and space metals and uh, spontaneously uh, combusts. For example, if you've been in any of your science classes in school where your teacher dropped a a pebble of uh, sodium in water, it, uh, it instantaneously starts to combust. And so uh, that's what happens in volcanism. At plate boundaries, uh, there's the cracks open up, uh, open up down into fresh deposits of uh, original space dust and metals, many of which are like uh, sodium, phosphorus, uh, sulfur, and potassium, which which come in con- coming in contact with uh, ocean water, uh, spontaneously combust and creates uh, the the lava. So the interior of the Earth is not molten. It's uh, the lava just ca- is caused by uh, reaction of uh, water with the original uh, material the Earth was was made of. How come that wouldn't be reflected today in current science understanding? Is it the paradigm that's the problem? Well, uh, you got to understand that uh, a lot of these textbooks and these uh, uh, these universities and the scientists are, are financed by uh, 
the super rich that are keeping this uh, discovery that Earth is hollow secret. Uh, I, I, I've done lots of research on the the Central Bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve, and how it was set up, and and it was actually it is actually a, a private institution of the super rich, uh, including uh, Rockefellers and uh, Rothschilds of Europe, and uh, and how they use the money uh, that is created control our government, our, uh, our, our educational institutions, our textbook uh, manufacturers, our, our publishers, or, or belong to them. So they, they pretty much control what is taught in the schools uh, or is taught over the airwaves because they control or own most of the uh, newspapers and uh, media outlets. And it's only uh, through uh, the less control that they have uh, or, or no control they have over the Internet that we are able to get out some of the truth of what is being discovered. I have a question about the Earth's Van Allen radiation belts, the fact that they prove that the Earth is hollow. Can you explain this, or is it too scientific to explain? No, it is quite simple. Uh Scientists, uh, it's, it's, scientists compare the auroras, the, the, the northern and southern lights, to a television in which uh, the cathode is uh, an electron beam that hits the atmosphere above the, polar, uh, above the Arctic uh, areas, Arctic and Antarctic. And actually, uh, they don't know where that cathode uh, comes from. Well, at least the original uh, articles that I got from Encyclopedia Britannica said that, but later in later years, uh, the scientists were claiming that that uh, the cathode or the electron beam causing the the aurora lights is coming from our outer sun. But that that they're they're con- contradicting themselves because the Earth has a magnetic field that surrounds it that protects it from the solar wind from the, our outer sun so that it cannot enter. It is uh, bent around the Earth's magnetic field when it uh, uh, comes in proximity. So the radiation that is causing the fan out in radiation belts and the northern lights is actually coming from the inner sun. The Earth in, inside of our hollow Earth, uh, there is a sun. There is a small inner sun. It's estimated about 600 miles in diameter. Uh, Olaf Jensen and his uh, father were a couple of uh, Norwegian fishermen that in 1929 were north of uh, French Joseph Land up in the Arctic and uh, they noticed there was a lead in the ice, and his, he told his father, you've told me many times about our ancestors that uh, believe that in the north there are uh, chosen people that live there. And why don't we go explore? Because there was this lead in the ice, and, and uh, his father says, are you willing to explore? And he says, okay. And so they went off through this lead in the ice towards the northeast, and they accidentally, they didn't even know the polar opening existed, 
But the axis of the Lentley just uh, fell to right through it. Uh, there's just a gradual curvature of the Earth that goes into the hollow Earth through this polar opening. And uh, about halfway through, they could, they could see over the horizon this inner sun. And he described it several times in his book. He says that it is pretty much stationary, although is, there's uh, research by uh, astronomer Edmund Holley uh, of, uh, of Britain in the 1700s. He's the one that discovered Halley's Comet. Uh, he came up with the theory that the Earth was hollow because of the magnetic field of the Earth. And he, uh, his, his study of the magnetic field of the Earth was that the magnetic field rotates about once every 700 years. So apparently the inner sun does rotate very slowly about uh, once every 700 years. I believe it actually in, in the beginning of the Earth's creation, it was rotating once every 1,000 years. But there have been changes in the Earth's orbit that has caused it, uh, our, our, our solar year to change uh, so that now it's about 700 years. And he says this inner sun uh, is divided between its day and night sides so that on the day side it's like a bright cloud, white cloud uh, for daytime, and on the, on the dark side it's a brownish-red color for night. And uh, it has an opaque, large opaque uh, circular area that he says within this circular opaque area are little dots, like holes in it that lets out bright light like stars at night. And uh, since the magnetic field of the Earth uh, causes the magnetic field lines to go out through our south pole or opening out through the south pole and then go in the north pole, uh, their their uh, directions of the compasses are exactly opposite of ours. So actually, uh, yeah, the sun does appear to come up in the morning uh, in the east, but it uh, is their east, and their their north pole is our south pole. Our north pole is their 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 north. Uh, our north pole is their south pole, or our south pole is their north pole. So the Van Allen radiation belts are actually radiation. It comes from the inner sun, solar wind that comes out through the pole openings. It hits the atmosphere above, above the poles. Uh, these are charged particles that come from the sun. Uh, they're like electrons and protons, and, and they follow the electromagnetic field lines of the Earth, and that's why they appear like an oval over the poles, is because... Uh, the magnetic field is, is has that shape over the pole, is an oval shape, and then and then they follow the electromagnetic field lines towards the equator, and the and they congregate over the equator in what they call the Van Allen radiation belts. Right, because I always thought of the Van Allen radiation belts as being outside of the Earth. The magnetic field of the Earth. Uh, is it continues out in this space uh, quite a distance, but it's, uh, there's, there's the, like layers of it. Uh, uh, the, uh, if you have a compass, uh, the uh, compass will point to our North Pole because uh, the, the compass needle uh, that's pointing towards our North Pole is the South Pole of that compass. And so uh, in magnet magnetics, uh, opposites attract or 
and that's why 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 it uh, points towards our North Pole, and it, it actually follows the magnetic field lines of the Earth. Uh, well, these magnetic field lines continue way out in the space, and uh, the uh, charged particles that come up out of the polar opening they follow these magnetic field lines, and they uh, congregate over the equator, and uh, in the, in what they call the the Van Allen radiation belts. There are many pilots who are aware of the polar openings that fly in the Arctic, correct? Actually, we do. We have, on my website, uh, our hollow our earth.com, uh, I was uh, able to get a one of my friends who, he, his name is Ivars. He now lives in England. At that time, he was living in the United States, and every time that he would go from one place to another after he had learned about the hollow earth and bought my book, uh, he would ask, he would sit on the airplane, and uh, uh, he always tried to sit next to a pilot that was going as a passenger, so he could ask them to see if any of them had ever ever seen the polar opening. And he actually set, found one that had seen it. And he sat down next to him, and they struck up a conversation. You can watch the video on my website. I did. I did. <laughs> Interview. <laughs> Very interesting. What does he do now? Uh, he uh, he works for his father uh, in their their family business, and they have uh, some electronic equipment that they they build, and and uh, he he's a here in the, in the Phoenix area, but uh, he moved to England now. In in that video, he discloses what he was told by a pilot who has flown around the North Pole openings, not in but around. Well, yes, the, the pilot explained that you cannot fly over this pole opening. It does exist. It's a big hole in the Arctic Ocean. And uh, the reason why you can't fly over it is because there's no gravity in the hole. Uh, in fact, the fir very first satellites that were sent up over the Arctic uh, in, in polar orbit were lost because they didn't take into account the, the polar opening. And uh, then it wasn't until later that they were able to achieve uh, polar orbits by flying uh, them uh, either to the either side of the polar opening. And uh, I have several uh, images showing the flight path, the flight path of uh, satellites, and they all show that they do not fly over a certain area up there in the Arctic or the Antarctic. Antarctic, because there's a hole at the pole and near the pole and near the south pole. It goes into the inner Earth. These openings are quite large. My estimate is that it starts curving in uh, the Earth about 700 miles north of Point Barrel in the direction of 87.7 north latitude and 142.2 east longitude. And then it just gradually curves into the hollow earth uh, at the point where the, the, the neck of, of the opening, uh, where the land masses are, are closest together, uh, I estimate it's about uh, 90 miles in diameter. That's big. Yeah, because if, if you go out in space, uh, you, you reach space within about 40 miles. And... Uh, our satellites, they, they, they orbit up there uh, between 40 and, and 10,000 miles. The geosynchronous orbits are, are 
they're far the farther out, but most of the orbits are closer closer in. But the atmosphere doesn't go up all that far, and so uh, there's the scientists are wonder, and I get the question a lot that how come water doesn't uh, drain down the hole? Well, the the fact is is that in a hollow planet, you don't you have two centers of gravity. One is the inner sun, and the other is in the shell of the planet. Okay, and so since most of the mass of the planet, 99.9% of the mass of the planet is in the shell of the planet, then gravity accelerates towards the shell of the planet from both outside and inside surfaces. And uh, you don't you don't get to the center of gravity in the in the shell uh, until you go down about 400 or 500 uh, or more miles down into this shell surface, at which point uh, you reach a point where there is uh, zero gravity. And this is actually uh, recorded in uh, by William Morgan, who called himself I Am the Man in the book Edadorpa. There's a link on my website to that book, that after they had gone down in this cavern in Kentucky, as about, uh, he claimed that the he claimed that the uh, center of gravity is about 700 miles down, and uh, at that point they floated in the air, like as if they were in outer space. But it was, you know, there was air. There's air inside the shell. Talk a little bit about Steve Curry, who was your former and beloved expedition leader. He was going to lead an expedition to the Hollow Earth, correct? Correct, yes. Uh, Steve Curry contacted me in about 2003. We went up to visit him in uh, uh, in uh, Provo, Utah, where he lived. He, uh, in about uh, 1950, his father had uh, organized the expedition company, uh, the Curry Expedition Company, and uh, they would take people on raft expeditions down rivers all, all around the world, and and. Uh, Steve, he, he took up the business after his father had retired, and uh, he was doing a, an expedition down the Zompos Gorge in uh, Tibet, which is the deepest canyon in the world, and uh, one of his their uh, Tibetan guides told them uh, when they discovered this hidden falls over there that uh, their their ancestors uh, uh, were were visited by a people that came up out of a cavern behind this falls from inside the earth, which, which they call a garta. And uh, this, uh, what they call the king of the world, the uh, inner world, uh, came up through this cavern and met with a Tibetan lama. And their religion is pretty much based on this visit and what this uh, inner earth person told them that someday that they would uh, emerge to help uh, establish world peace. And uh, it, it, uh, he, he, he was interested in the hollow... Uh, Steve Curry was interested in the hollow earth because uh, of what this Tibetan guy told him about Agartha and this cavern that he claimed goes, goes through the Agartha. Uh, his father had actually introduced him to the hollow earth theory when he formed this expedition company when he was a, a, just a young young boy. Uh, but he didn't take much uh, 
credence to the idea until this Tibetan guide had told him uh, his story about the, the the king of the world in a world coming out through this cavern. So uh, he got on the internet and he was looking uh, for uh, any in- information on the Hollow Earth. When he came to my website, he contacted me. Uh, he suggested that we uh, organize an expedition to go to the Hollow Earth. I said. Well, that would be wonderful. Uh, we went up to visit him and his wife up in uh, Provo, Utah. We 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 set up websites. Uh, we uh, he he contacted the Russian uh, nuclear uh, ship uh, called the Yamal. Is taking tourists to the, to the pole every year at that time and. Uh, we we put together an expedition uh, plan to to go to the North Pole opening in this uh, Russian nuclear uh, icebreaker, and uh, he came in April of 2006. He came back from doing some business in South America where he had some property, and uh, he uh, went to the doctor. Found out he had cancer. Six six. Uh, brain tumors, they claimed it was inoperable, and I tried to get him to take some of the herbs that I had used to uh, help me get over uh, a cancer infection in my thyroid. Uh, but yeah, I, I couldn't get him, get him to take it, and he died a couple of months later. I'm so sorry. We, we had uh, planned to do an overflight just uh, that summer. And we were planning to follow up with the, the ship expedition by ship the next year, and we had actually he had actually we had actually sold uh, seats on the Yamal uh, to about 40 people that had bought uh, seats for about 20 to 25 thousand uh, dollars to go on this expedition, and so we we were just all devastated when he died because he he told me that. He had arranged with his father-in-law to, to, to carry on and do the expedition after he passed away, but after he passed away, they didn't want to do it. They they returned everybody's money and canceled the expedition. Wow. Uh, we, we did uh, get together, and uh, one of the uh, people uh, that was wanting to go on the expedition was a, uh, a physicist, uh, Dr. Brooks Agnew. Uh, he offered to take over as uh, expedition leader, and uh, we voted him. Uh, I had a, a, the ones that were expedition members that I knew about. Uh, we all uh, voted him as our ex- expedition leader. And so, uh, well, it, it hasn't come off. Uh, the expedition hasn't come off because. Uh, I think mainly because Dr. Agnew had decided with his lawyers that that to finance the expedition, he should uh, only uh, finance it with donations. And then with the recent economic crash, well, people just don't have money, much money to donate. I think also he's bringing the electric car or electric trucks into being, and he's involved in that venture, and... I know a few years ago they really had it set to go. I think it was in August, and there wasn't enough funds. But I think also it's been kind of packaged as an educational entertainment 
venue with all these different aspects to it. Well, and also he, he's a scientist, you know, and he doesn't want to just, uh, just take a bunch of tourists up there like uh, Steve Curry was doing. He was just selling tickets to anybody that wanted to go. Uh, Dr. Agnew, he he wants to he he wants to uh, take scientists and uh, film crews and take a movie film of uh, what they discover, uh, bring back uh, scientific uh, data that will uh, prove that the Earth is hollow, that the Earth uh, does have polar openings. What makes you think, for example, that at this point, given that the military has been involved the last time somebody flew toward the polar openings, and I believe and I accept that it was because the person in that particular airplane was representing the media and calls had been made about that. So it was interrupted and it was intercepted. But what makes you think at this point, Brooke Agnew's, you know, management of this, that he could do better than anybody else has done? You know, actually, I I, I believe it'd be better uh, for people to go on their own uh, because, because, you know, they might have, we might get some opposition, you know, like uh, we, we have. Uh, like Billy was turned back at the pole. But uh, I do think that Billy would have made it there if he hadn't have been uh, turned in by his uh, co-expedition uh, member. But uh, so uh, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting in my ebook that I saw on my website, com, and I give a, a, a sample expedition plan. We have contacted a... Uh, seaplane owner, uh, albatross seaplane owner in Alaska, who is willing to take anybody anywhere in the Arctic that they want to go. He doesn't necessarily believe that there's a hollow, but he will uh, take people where they want to go, and he's willing to fly below uh, the radar level. So uh, there's a possibility there, you know, that somebody of uh, that has some money that was is able to pay for this uh, uh, flight because it does cost a lot of money. How long does it take to get from Alaska to the North Pole opening? Well, my estimate in this uh, in this uh, sample e- uh, expedition plan that I have on my ebook is that it's about 1,300 uh, miles from Point Barrow to the intercontinent. And this pl- plane flies fast enough so that would take about eight hours from Point Barrel till you reach the intercontinent. And then the, being in a seaplane, then you could just land off the coast and coast up to the coast uh, and then off board on, into the intercontinent. But where do they get gasoline to fly the plane? Let's say they fly in toward the inner earth. Where are they landing? Where are they going? Yeah, well, uh, my estimate for the polar opening is uh, uh, is that given by Admiral Bird. uh from the Hollow Earth file, uh, Billy, uh, Lieutenant Billy Woodard, uh, was able to get out of Area 51. It's 87.7 north latitude, 142 point east longitude, which the polar opening, uh, starts to curve in gradually, uh, to the, into the inner Earth, uh, about 784 miles from Point Barrel. And, uh, and then there's another 629 miles until you reach the halfway point, which I believe is where the intercontinent is located. So it's about 1,300 miles uh, from Point Barrel, and you get, you can reach there in about eight hours. 
And since most of it, that area is all over ocean, open ocean, after you get past the ice, uh, then you can uh, just uh, land on the ocean and coast up to the intercontinent, not Florida. What if you get sucked in by the hole? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, uh, there is no suction in the pole opening. Uh, there is a there is indications that there is uh, a jet stream of air that comes out of there that blows across the Arctic Ocean across the pole over Greenland, and this warm moist air is what causes the thick ice of uh, about three miles deep on Greenland on the Greenland ice cap. Uh, for example, if that, that uh, jet stream would change for some reason and blow towards Alaska, Alaska would be at three miles underneath ice. So uh, that's one indication to me that the, that the uh, polar opening is near Greenland is because uh, of all that ice. It, it, it comes from the warm, moist air that comes blows up out of the polar opening that then condenses and uh, falls on the Greenland ice cap. And there's also a strong current that comes up out of the polar opening and goes across the Arctic uh, towards Greenland. Uh, and uh, so uh, there's lots, there's a lot of evidences that the polar opening exists. Is the warm, warm air that comes up out of their uh, Nansen in the ship, the Fram, when he went uh, on his expedition uh, way back in the 1600s, I forget exactly what, how, what year it was. Oh, it was 18, 1800, 1893, when he went on his expedition. Uh, Christoph Nansen, uh, he went up uh, north of the New Siberian Islands. His ship uh, caught in the ice, and then his intent was to float across the Arctic to see where the currents took him. And in the middle of the winter, he noticed that whenever there was a wind coming from the north, uh, it was warmer than wind that came from the south. So there's uh, in the, that, that's a scientific evidence right there that the air that comes up there's there's warm air that comes up out of the pole opening even in the, in the winter time. So Ronnie, let's suppose you and I get in that plane. We get in that seaplane, and is it eight hours later, we're near the polar opening, correct? No, it's eight hours from Point uh, Barrel to the intercontinent. So okay. you would get to uh, the where the Earth starts to curve in uh, much less than that. We get to that point, and you're now directing this. Where are we going? What are we doing? Yeah, you, you would go in the, in the, the direction from Point Barrel of uh, the coordinates of 87.7 north latitude, 142.0 east longitude, and the pilots would be able to uh, direct the plane in that in, into those coordinates, okay? And once you're going in those coordinates, then you will fly right into the polar opening. If you go to either side of it, then, you, for, of course, you would fly past it. And now what? You and I are in the plane. What are we doing? We're going to land inside it? Yeah, after some at one at some point past uh, uh, 784 point uh, 84 miles from Point Peril, uh, where the pole opening starts to dip into the earth. Uh, there's there's a point uh, about a quarter of the way way in where you will see the inner sun uh, start uh, 
coming up over the horizon, you'll be able to see the inner sun. So you'll know that you're going in the right direction. And uh, you just keep flying over the ocean and uh, until you come uh, close to close to land, and then you just uh, land on the on the coast in the ocean and coast up to the up to land. Interesting. That'd be most interesting flight now, wouldn't it? We'd have to take our red motion picture cameras, wouldn't we? <laughs> well, yeah, you definitely want to take your video cameras with you, your still cameras, uh, and record everything that you can. And uh, I'm uh, on my website. I've, I'm offering, a, you know, uh, I have accounts of uh, all the people that uh, have gone or claim to have gone to the Hollywood either through the cavern systems or through the polar openings. Uh, you know, if any of you uh, do take take me up on this uh, this uh, flight plan, uh, to go to the Hall of Earth, uh, I would ask that you uh, contact us and uh, let us know how it went and, and uh, maybe even provide some pictures of what you found. $80,000 a piece to go, is that what it is? How many can fit into this smaller plane? Well, this plane can hold four people, and so uh, it uh, it would you, you divide the 80000 among you, so that would be about 20000 each. So 20000 each. Very doable. So we would take care of your flight. That means you and me and two other people need to go. <laughs> I think we should just sell the first tour for $125,000 and go for it. Well, uh, you know, I offer this uh, flight plan for anybody that was, is interested in going up there. And and uh, there's a lot of people that have contacted me through my website that are interested in the hollow earth that would, would actually like to go to the hollow earth because from all accounts of people that have gone there, it is a terrestrial paradise. Uh, Olaf Jansen, he said after a year of being there, they were taken to the capital city of the Hollow Earth, and they, it's built around the original Garden of Eden. What's the name of that capital city? The city of Eden. Their their capital city is called the City of Eden. It is built around the original Garden of Eden. He says there's a, a natural artesian fountain that, that shoots up in the garden, it waters the garden, and then it, uh, it flows off the highest mountain plateau on which the, the garden is located of the inner continent into four directions, and that's what is called in the Bible the Pison, the Heidekel, the Gaihan, and, uh, and the Euphrates rivers. They flow the four corners, four, four directions of the compass, and, and even there are scriptures in the Bible that talks about the four corners of the earth. The four corners of the earth are at the Garden of Eden, where... The earth is divided into four sections by the four rivers that flow out of the garden. Why doesn't the inner earth peoples help us directly? We need help up here. Why can't they help us directly? What's your take on that? They don't believe in war. Uh, they are a peaceful people. Uh, they do, do accept their role as guardians of the planet. And they do say that they are coming out uh, soon. Uh, we have scriptural prophecies in the Bible and the Latter-day Saint scriptures that say that the lost tribes will come down from the north. And uh, it, uh, I believe it won't be until after 
a, a great war that has pretty much obliterated the the governments of the outer world, uh, but they will come to establish peace, uh, prosperity, and uh, and and uh, health and and happiness to to the peoples of the world that are willing to accept uh, those premises. Now, we in order to do that, they they maintain that we have to give up our our warlike attitudes. And we have to quit fighting each other. Uh, they they uh, they let us have our wars and fight and kill each other uh, because uh, they they don't believe in forcing people, but uh, they do encourage us to be a peaceful people like they are. Where did you get this information that you're sharing with me right now? It's almost like you're a spokesperson for them or translating from their view. Did someone tell you this who had been in the inner earth? From all the accounts that I have read of people going to the Hall of Earth, these people are a peaceful, life-loving people that only want the best for for the people of outer Earth. Uh, on my website, you can read a book called uh, Passport to Eternity. Uh, you just go on my website, click on other links, and go down to Passport to Eternity. It was this fellow in uh, Los Angeles, California, who... He went out in the desert because he had this this mental uh, inclinations to go camping, and uh, it was actually uh, mental men- messages given to him by these people that he met uh, when he was out there camping. A guy would just come up and and to his campsite, and they became pretty good friends, talking and and talking about all kinds of things. He he, he seemed like he, he knew everything. And uh, after a few times, he invited him over the hill, and there was his flying saucer. He introduced him to his crew. Uh, they told him that they wanted him to write a book because uh, they wanted the people of the outer earth to know what uh, what they were up to. And they they explained to uh, uh, Larry Foreman, is his name, uh, that... Uh, we on this earth are on a prison planet for something that our ancestors did. Our ancestors, of course, were Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They what did they do? They they broke a commandment of God uh, by partaking of the forbidden fruit, for which they were expelled. And uh, the indications are from the lost books of the Bible, from the book of Adam and Eve, that they. Uh, God told them after they were expelled from the Garden of Eden to go into the Cave of Treasures where they got lost. And after wandering for such a long time, they finally came out. But when they came out, they came out on the surface of the planet. And he remarked that the sun that came up was hot and not like the soft rays of the sun in the Garden of Eden. So uh, these people from this flying saucer, they say that our prison sentence is almost up. Uh, we have gone through about 7,000 years of our prison sentence, uh, 6,000 years, pardon me, uh, and uh, starting the 7,000 years, we'll be- begin what they call uh, Project Milana. And in the scriptures, it's called the millennium, uh, when Christ returns. The earth will be uh, cleansed, and uh, re- renewed to its paradisical glory, and uh, people will live on 
the earth with uh, no no sickness, no 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 wars, uh, peace and and uh, plenty for a thousand years. And they they say that our prison sentence is almost up. Good. What's the date that it's over? <laughs> I, I've done a lot of research on that too, and. Uh, from my research from the from the scriptures are that uh, you know, like in Revelations chapter eight, uh, well, in Rev- book of Revelations in the Bible, it talks about a book that is filled uh, with seven seals, and uh, from our Latter Day Saint prophet uh, Joseph Smith, who, who was was called by God to restore the uh, pure uh, doctrine of Jesus Christ on and His Church on the earth again. In 1830, uh, he received many revelations from Jesus Christ. One of them was on the Revelations chapter, uh, Revelations of the Bible. And uh, in Revelations chapter, he, he says that the seals are uh, represent 1,000 earth years, each seal, and there are seven seals. So uh, the temporal existence of the earth after the fall of Adam is 7,000 years. And it's been about 6,000 and uh, the 7,000 years began in the year 2000. So in chapter 8 of the uh, book of Revelations, it says, on the opening of the seventh seal, meaning uh, the beginning of the 7,000 years from, from the fall of Adam, uh, there was silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. Now, in the scriptures, we learn that one day of God's time on his planet, in the center of the galaxy, uh, is 1,000 Earth years, okay? So uh, half an hour of God's time uh, would be about 20.83 years of our time, which comes out to be about the end of October of 2020. If if you're counting from January of uh, 2000. Now, if you're going to count from uh, April, is the first month of the Hebrew calendar, then uh, 20.83 years would be the end of January of 2021. And that is my estimate of when uh, the Earth is going to be hit by a solar flare that will burn the surface of the planet. All the people that are not caught up or saved uh, will be, from the burning, will be burned. And uh, Earth's surface will be changed the continents will be driven back into their original uh, orientation of one one continent on the out, ex- exterior of the planet and one on the in- interior. Uh, the oceans will be driven back into the north countries of the hollow earth from where they came at Noah's flood. And uh, the millennial reign of Christ will begin. My research of the hollow earth is that the inner earth people have the, uh, the uh, legal and the legal and inherited throne of King David, uh, which is the political kingdom of God. And when they come, when they expand the outer earth, uh, the, the uh, outer earth, uh, the kingdom of political kingdom of God will eventually cover all the earth, and Christ will be given the kingship uh, that he inherited from his ancestor David. Uh, through the down through the lineage, and uh, he will reign on the throne of David over the kingdom of God throughout the millennial reign. And these people in this flying saucer says that they 
they have a plan they call the Project Milana, which sounds a lot like Millennium, uh, in which they have uh, they they have the ability to commandeer enough flying saucers they say to evacuate the surface of the planet in one week. Wow! And on this on the on the cover of this book that Larry Foreman and, and these flying saucer people wrote uh, is a picture of a solar flare coming from our sun and a countdown. And there's a countdown to the millennium. The countdown is uh, counting down to the year 2020 or the beginning of 2021 when the Earth will be hit by a solar flare that has actually been seen uh, by uh, Ed Dames and his, uh, uh, his remote viewing crew in Las Vegas. They have looked into the future and they have seen that the Earth is going to be hit by a solar flare that will consume the surface of the planet and will kill all living things on the planet. I try not to be involved in too much doom and gloom, although, you know, different people are going to respond differently to what you're sharing. First of all, the geological scientific facts that you can verify, that's one part of it. The other part of it is what you're describing really is revisionist history. And we know that most of us are not receptive to revisionist history, but yet that's the most exciting part of exploration and discovery is that you're discovering stuff that's totally new. You have to put the paradigm that you were operating from to the side so that you can learn. The other side of this is the biblical or the scripture side, which you're coming to a translation at the end of this segment which is really, really involved in what you explain thoroughly in your book. And people who can't accept the scientific side might be open to the religious, spiritual side. The people that can't accept your translation religiously might be able to accept the geological side. Do you see what I'm saying? Or the historical uh, evidences. Uh, yes. Uh, we have very uh, interesting... Uh, historical accounts, uh, scientific evidence, uh, and scriptural uh, support uh, that uh, supports the idea that the Earth is hollow, including the Moon, the Sun. Uh, I even calculated there's a, a asteroid out there that has a Moon that, that orbits it called Ohania. And with an orbiting Moon, you can calculate the surface gravity of that Moon, and from the surface gravity, you can calculate Using the diameter, a measured diameter of uh, the asteroid, you can uh, calculate the density of the of the asteroid, and it comes out to be water. But you can see it through the telescope that it's it's not water; it's it's uh, a rock. So the only conclu conclusion has to be then that it's hollow because it uh, has such a low density. I want to talk about two other things with you. One is the diaries of Admiral Byrd's expedition. Is there a diary that exists, or is it completely out of commission? The, uh, the Admiral Byrd diary uh, that we have, uh, the source of it is uh, a hollow earth researcher in Missouri uh, that I I actually received my first copy from uh Bruce Walton of uh, Provo, Utah, a hollow earth researcher, when he was uh, attending Brigham Young University, 
uh, back when I was writing my ebook in the 80s, uh, he gave me a copy of Admiral Bird uh, diary uh, that uh, came from this. Uh, I can't hardly pronounce his name uh, from this hollow earth researcher in Missouri. That uh, is is quite interesting. We don't know uh, where he got it, or if he made it up, or if he just made it up from what he had heard, or what. Uh, but it is confirmed by the separate story that I received from my friend uh, uh, John Gani up in Alaska, that uh, close friend of Admiral Byrd. Sylvia Darvell was her name. Uh, she was involved in Alaskan politics from way back, was a close friend of Admiral Byrd, and then claimed that uh, it told my friend John Gagne that Admiral Byrd had confided in her after his Arctic flight of 1947 into the Arctic, that what had happened to him. So we have two separate accounts, so one that, that confirm it. Uh, we also found another one recently, uh, a book called Genesis for a New Age. Uh, it's actually a, a, a copyrighted uh, a work that has not been published, but uh, somebody sent me uh, a manuscript of it. I don't know where they got it, uh, but it is also being sold by One Light online, uh, and, and uh, it's... I looked it up in the copyright office, and it, it, it exists there. And it's a very interesting read because he, he has accounts of uh, Admiral Byrd's flights through both the North and South Pole openings into the Hall of Earth. But is that the one that was questioned by one of the people who is on your expedition or is on Brooke Agnew's expedition? Somebody questioned one of the accounts, correct? One of our expedition members, uh, he offered to be the over overflight coordinator after Steve Curry died. Uh, I would I would get emails from people and contacts, you know, and I would send him out uh, investigating because uh, he had more money than I did to do those kinds of things. He has a home business. One of those persons that he went to visit was uh, Hank Frank uh, Hank Crossman. Uh, he was living at that time over in Los Angeles. And Hank Crossman has done interviews with other Hall Earth researchers, and uh, he he confessed everything to our expedition member. He he, he told us that he had uh, learned from the Hopi Indians that uh, they have there's an opening in the Grand Canyon and it goes to the Hall of Earth through through this opening they call it Sipapoo or something like that. And uh, he wanted to know if they would let him go. And so he, he finally, finally they told him that you will meet somebody uh, at the university because he was attending Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff at the time. And, and soon after he started the, the, the semester, this boy uh, walked up to him and struck up a conversation that became quite good friends. And he, he found out that he was uh, the great-grandson of the lost, lost Dutchman of uh, the superstition uh, gold mine uh, fame uh, legend. And uh, he, he uh, one day just invited him. He said, would you like to go uh, to the Hollow Earth? And he said, sure would. And so he took him up on the rim someplace uh, on the Grand, Grand Canyon. Uh, didn't say exactly where because they blindfolded him. He blindfolded him. And they went, rode on these mules or donkeys down into the canyon for hours and hours and hours, 
And finally, he said, take off your, your, your blindfold. And they stood up against the canyon wall. He said, stick your hand against the canyon wall. And he stuck his hand and it went right through, right into the wall. And surprised. <laughs> and, and the boy, uh, laughed and he says, it, it's a holographic image that we put over the, the cavern entrance. Fascinating. Fascinating. <laughs> You can read about this holographic technology uh, in this book uh, uh, by uh, Larry Foreman on my website, uh, Passport to Eternity. He, they, he, uh, they use this. They, they spray uh, iodine crystals uh, out over an area, and they, uh, they project a holographic image on it that, that appears whatever, whatever they project onto it. Uh, in this case, it was the side of the canyon, you know, it looked just like the canyon wall. So all they did was they just walked through this uh, holographic in- image through into the cavern. They came, it was all lit up with electric, electric, uh, electricity. Uh, they got in a, in a, some kind of conveyor uh, di- uh, contraption and went down into the earth, uh, clear, clear to the inner surface. Uh, it was sort of like an elevator, and they got out in this room uh, uh, near the inner surface, and there was a whole bunch of doors, and uh, he went up this one door and put his hand up, and it opened up for him, and he asked him what all the other doors were, and he said, well, if anybody gets to this point, uh, they may go through the wrong door, and and uh, <laughs> he didn't tell him what would happen to him <laughs> in the other doors, but there's only one door that would lead to the surface. So they they got to the surface. They got on this uh, this uh, vehicle that uh, was anti gravity. It was raised up off the ground and zipped off to to the the city. There's a city uh, in the inner Earth, according to Hank Crossman, of uh, Hopi Indians that live inside the Earth. And uh, he said he fell in love with one of the girls there. Was the marrier and. Uh, they married, and uh, but he wanted to come back to the service to get his personal belongings, and and his friend told him, "Okay, uh, I'll take you back to the service, and then you just come down in this area, of the Grand Canyon, and yell out my name, and I'll come get you." Which he did, uh, and the guy never came and got him. So he he was telling my friend, uh, our expedition, our flight coordinator this story and tears started coming in out of his eyes and he was 70 years old that he wasn't ever able to go back and marry his love. Wow. He later moved to the Philippines and uh, something happened to him over there. He got sick and died just, just in January of this year. What's the name of his book? He, he didn't actually uh, do a book. He's. Uh, I got on my website uh, an interview that was done by one of the Hollow Earth researchers, uh, a guy down in Florida. But there was a book you just recently mentioned. About? Now I forgot. Hank Crossman did write, write a book. He's got a manuscript, and one of his wives has it, and we haven't been able to get it from him yet. <laughs> we're, we're, we've been trying to get it so we could get it published. That would be awesome. One last thing before we complete the first interview with you. Very interesting. What about gravity? Apparently our notion of gravity the origin, cause, and control of gravity is different. What is this? 
Well, I actually believe that the reason why the Hollow Earth people were able to invent flying saucer technology is because they studied the inner sun and how it, it maintains its central location in the center of the Earth. And uh, if it was for pure gravity, that it, it wouldn't be able to stay there. Uh, the only because uh, if if it got off ever so slightly to one side or closer to the surface on one side than the other, then it would be drawn to the surface and crash into the inner surface. So it, it's maintained there by uh, by the radiation and the electromagnetic uh, and the electrostatic charge that it has that it uh, repels the inner surface of the planet uh, to, to towards the central location. But uh, the scientists, uh, they claim in their college textbooks that everywhere inside of a hollow planet you would have zero gravity. But that's, that's because they don't take into account what, what gravity is. And, and when, you, when you research gravity, they, they say that they don't know what it is and what causes it. So I've come up with a uh, theory based on all my research of what gravity is, and that, and it's based. And I have several uh, uh, people that have come, that have 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 also came to the same same conclusion. Okay, that gravity is not a pull towards the surface of the planet, but it is a push from space. And the reason why it's being pushed. Its gravity is in the center of all atoms of, of the matter in the planet. Uh, the, the, actually, atoms are hollow, and they have a nucleus that is quite a, a distance from the orbiting electrons, okay? So in, in the nucleus, the nucleus uh, is the source of gravity. It is what's ca causing the draw. And... Uh, basic to this uh, theory is uh, is uh, that all of space is full of a, an etheric substance that uh, the, the scientists of the 19th century and earlier, for example, uh, Isaac Newton, believed that uh, all space is full of this etheric substance. Now, it's claimed that uh, towards the beginning of the, of the 20th century, that the Michelson-Morley experiment disproved the existence of of the ether of space, but when when you go into the literature and examine it carefully, you find that they did not find a zero, a, a null, a result in their experiment. They just discounted it. It was so small because they did it underground. Uh, there was another scientist uh, called Miller. They carried on the same experiments that Mike Samori did above ground and uh, uh, on all kinds of terrain for a period of 30 years and proved conclusively that there is an ether wind that blows uh, past the Earth, and I believe it actually blows into the Earth. And this ether wind blowing into the Earth is flowing into the nucleus of all atoms where the atom is ga gathers, the, uh, the, the nucleus of the atom gathers the ether gas and concentrated sit down into physical matter or spinning balls of matter that are then ejected out the south polar opening of the atom and become what is known as the magnetic field of the atom.
Are you familiar with Trevor James Constable? No. He has been doing weather engineering for like 50 years, and his basic principle is that weather comes from the ether, literally. That it comes into matter from the ether, that we don't understand weather the way we think we do. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of effects of the ether uh, that uh, need to be studied more uh, in depth. And uh, the the study of the ether and and its its effect as gravity uh, has been studied quite extensively, and I have in my ebook a whole a whole paper I've written on the uh, the control the cause the control of gravity the origin uh, cause and control of gravity it's extensive what you've written really involved it has discovered that uh, for example notably uh, Townsend Brown discovered that electromagnetic fields can control the ether flow and and control gravity and uh, there is evidence that uh, uh, our military, uh, there's uh, deep, deep down uh, black projects of the military that have knocked uh, flying saucers out of the sky, have taken them on the ground, and have back-engineered uh, this technology and are actually building flying saucers with using anti-gravity based on electromagnetics. It's electrogravitics, it's called, in which they use electricity and magnetism to, to, to control gravity and uh, use it as a propulsion uh, force uh, to travel anywhere in, in space or uh, underwater. Uh, it's, it's really a fascinating subject. Have you read Jan Lamprecht's The Hollow Planets? Oh yes, uh, I. Uh, if you read that book, you'll you'll notice uh, he, he he has a he gives. Uh, I'm in his uh, uh, acknowledgments at the beginning. I actually uh, uh, did some proofreading of his book while he was writing that, uh, and uh, gave him some suggestions as he was writing that book. It was he did an awesome job on that book. That's of, of the evidence that he, he came up with, there were several very interesting things. For example, Chernobyl uh, radiation that went off from the power plant that went off in the Ukraine. Uh, two years later, they found radiation uh, in, the, in the snow in Antarctica. And uh, the only way that that could have gotten there was if it had blown north and gone through the polar opening, blown through the inner earth and blown out to the south polar opening because... Uh, because of the wind patterns uh, over the surface of the planet uh, at the equator, there's this jet stream that flows around the middle of the uh, of the equator that prevents any air from the northern hemisphere from going into the southern hemisphere. Fascinating. He also did all that re- a lot of that research I was telling you about the viewing the uh, mirages in the Arctic and those. People that went up there. He also discovered a, uh, a, an article in one of the science magazines in 1920, of, uh, written by uh, Admiral Perry's uh, physicist, uh, Lieutenant Green, in which he interviewed the Greenland Eskimos, and he asked him point blank, "What happened to the uh, Viking uh, colonists that colonized Greenland back in like uh, 980 uh, A.D.?" 
and lived there for almost a thousand years and then just mysteriously disappeared. And the Greenland Eskimo said that, that one winter a hunting party came from the north and they, they, they told the people that they had found a paradise and that uh, they just all picked up their bags and singing songs, traipsed off across the ice in the middle of the winter and never came back. So apparently there was at that time enough ice to appear to the intercontinent that they were able just to just uh, to migrate over the ice to the intercontinent through the polar opening. Fascinating. Ronnie, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. I hope that you will come back. This is fascinating. There's so much. I know that we're scratching the surface. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to learn more about uh, the hollow earth, you can go to our O-U-R, hollow earth.com and you can purchase the ebook that Rodney has written and prepared for you. Have a look. It's certainly worth the $20. There are so many pieces of interesting, fascinating information. Rodney, I hope you'll join us again. Well, it's been a pleasure being with you on your show this, uh, today and uh, I wish you the best today. Thank you so much.